Isaiah chapter 30, 15 through 22. You can follow along on the screen. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on top of of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, your word is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. And so we pray that you would be our teacher this morning, that you would give us ears to listen, that we would not harden our hearts this day, but that we would hear your invitation to rest and to be quiet, to trust in you and to experience salvation. Whether that's uh, moving from death to life this morning or experiencing the renewal of your spirit, move us toward life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This week I watched a movie on Netflix called The Big Short. Uh, It's about the 2008 housing market collapse. I don't know if you all have seen this. Um, There's a character in the movie called Mark Baum. Uh, He's based on a man named Steve Eisman. So this is all based on on true events. Um, And throughout the movie, Mark Baum is kind of known and portrayed as a man who's really frustrated with the economic uh, market system in America. He's a trader, an investor, and he's always highlighting how corrupt and unjust everything in the system is. And he's kind of known as a crank, and he's seen as a little bit self-righteous, and he seems to love to stick it to people that he sees as bad actors. And in the movie, he and a few other characters begin to realize that there's a housing bubble, that um, there's been all these bad loans, that the market is inflated, and it's not just a bad thing, it's serious. And he says, it it seems like the market is going to actually collapse and it's going to be devastating. And so he's trying to get people to wake up to this and people see him again as crazy and self-righteous. And toward the end of the movie, um, right on the cusp of the collapse coming, he's in a debate with uh, a banker named uh, Bill Miller, 
who uh, I think was working for Bear Stearns. And they're debating, you know, the health of the market. And this guy gets up and just is full of confidence. Everything is great. The market's good. And, and Mark Baum is like, no, like you're absolutely wrong about this. And so is everyone else. The market is about to collapse. And while they're debating, the, the stock prices for Bear Stearns start to plummet, like 20, 30 points in the middle of the debate. And people start raising their hand going, would you still buy stock? And this guy's like, yeah, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And, uh, and then within a few days, Bear Stearns collapses and then the whole uh, market collapses. And um, at the end of the movie, I know I'm spoiling it, but it's based on true events. So you already know what happens. Um, at the end of the movie, there's kind of credits talking about where these different characters end up. And it says that uh, Mark Baum, who you can see throughout the movie, he's kind of a crank. Um, his wife says that he became gracious after this event, after this collapse. Um, he had always kind of been a little self-righteous. You know, everyone's corrupt. He's sort of this righteous crusader. But um, his wife says he became gracious and he never told anyone, um, I told you so. And I think that, wow, that's a really profound um, way to end the movie. Um, because I don't know about you, but that phrase, I told you so, uh, is like a phrase I love and I hate, <laughs> right? Um, I think that's probably true of all of us. Um, we know the draw of using that phrase with people. There, there's this, such a vindication when we have told people that what you're doing is dumb or it's wrong or, or I, I'm right about this and you're wrong. And then, you know, and then it's, it's evident that you were right. And just, you know, I, and I'm ashamed to say it, that like, I'll, I'll tell you, I told, I knew it. I knew it and you didn't listen to me, right? Uh, but we also probably know the other side of that, that, that sting of hearing that, that phrase, the, the shame of being exposed as being wrong or ignorant in some way or having screwed up and we didn't listen to people who knew better and they, and they point that finger, I told you so. And I wonder today if that's how you imagine God looking at you. In, in your screw-ups in life, your unfaithfulness, your sins, your bad habits, do you imagine God standing there waiting to say to you, I told you? Is he eager to hold your faults and your flaws and your sins over your head? and rub your nose in it. Maybe you imagine God today as extremely frustrated with you. And so even when you finally admit you're wrong, he's kind of a little ticked off at you that it took you so long to finally get to that place. You know, okay, I know God forgives, sure, but he's still a little mad at me afterwards. Uh, we've been focusing on the doctrine of God in our series um, in Isaiah in order to gain a renewed vision of who God is and what it means for us in the everyday. And so this morning, we're going to continue on that theme to say, let, let's take a look at what Isaiah tells us about the character of God. And in particular, the character of God towards people who are stubborn. What is his character like? And so today, I just want to survey our passage and then hone in on verses 18 and 19 to look at what God is like. And then I, I just want to wrap it up with a few lessons at the end. So let me let me survey chapter 30 for us um, briefly. Um, I didn't read the first 14 verses or so, but I kind of want to give you some context for what's been going on here. In chapter 30, King Hezekiah, the king of Judah, 
is facing impending doom because the Assyrian army is coming. Uh, Assyria has already wrecked Israel, and now Judah and Hezekiah have to decide what they're going to do to prepare for the Assyrians coming. And so they come up with this, what they see as a brilliant idea, which is, well, let's make an alliance with Egypt and with the Philistines. And if you know your Bible, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> this is going back to people that had oppressed Israel, enslaved Israel, and here they are going to make an alliance with them. In verse 1, God says this, Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. That's the context here. Judah is turning once again to put their trust in the very people that have enslaved them and oppressed them and gone to war with them. And God says, stubborn children. Now, some of you know about stubborn children right? And you know what it looks like for a child to not listen to your voice, even when what they're doing is stupid or dangerous or destructive or sinful. And they argue and they argue or they ignore and they dig in their heels. They are intent on doing that which is destructive to them. They refuse to listen to you. And this is what God is saying Israel is like. They refuse to listen to him. They aren't listening to his voice. They aren't following his instruction. And fundamentally, they aren't trusting in him to deliver them. And so Hezekiah sends this envoy who have to travel through the wilderness. And Isaiah describes this dangerous journey. That's, it's a waste of time. It's fruitless. They're taking all this treasure to, to make a, a tribute in order to gain this alliance. And he's saying it's, it's going to be a waste. And so in verse 8, God says to Isaiah that I want you to write down what's happening right now with Judah. I want it to be a testimony for future generations. Mark this occasion so that they will remember in the future how they acted here and hopefully learn from this. And this reminded me of when I was a child and I argued with my own parents about how my family would be a democracy one day <laughs> uh, and uh, how silly of an idea that was. And so they said, write it down, write it down and sign this document. And I did, you know, which is, by the way, not a legally binding contract if you're under 18. But um, they said, write it down as a testimony. Remember this day you're digging in on this point. And, and that's what God was having Israel do. And he warns them. He says, this is going to be a disaster. You're building this mighty wall that you think is going to protect you, but there's like this breach in it. And that breach is going to lead it to collapse and it's going to fall on you. Um, and it's, it's going to be devastating. Of course, they're not listening. And so he says, Here, here's what's going to happen. There are only two ways forward. He says, you can return to me and rest in me. And if you do that, I will save you. Or you can continue to trust in worldly powers and false saviors in, in horses. That's a, a sort of a metaphor for, or it represents armies. You can trust in horses. And if you do that, you're going to be chased by horses. You know, they're going to, they're going to pursue you and you're going to be defeated. And even small, num or small numbers of the Assyrians are going to lead you to be in fear and you're going to run away and retreat and they're going to dominate you. That's the only two ways for it. Trust in me, trust in horses, and it's not going to go well if you trust in horses. Now, now the reason I give you this context is because all of this, um, it just maps on so well to, to how we live our lives every day. Um, how often do we insist on 
dealing with our problems by our own strategies, right? Trying to solve the suffering we face, the hardship that we face, uh, the difficult decisions with our own strategies rather than consulting the Lord, rather than trusting in him to deliver us, right? This is what idolatry is all about. We talk about it a lot here. Idolatry in Israel meant they literally turned to foreign gods, foreign powers, but inside all humans is this need to worship and to trust in something to save us and deliver us. And so we take good things that God has made and we turn them into saviors, things that if we, if we do what this thing requires of us, ultimately it will deliver us from our problems. And so we, we see our career as something that will ultimately give us satisfaction or security, or um, we have some problem and so our savior will be research. If I can get online and learn enough about this and study it enough, then I'll be okay. I'll figure out how to do it and that will save me. Or um, if I can be beautiful enough or liked by people enough, or if I can have a enough fun in my life, then I'll be satisfied. We, we turn to all sorts of things to deal with our problems, and none of those things can save us or deliver us. And even when God says, hello, remember me, I made you, I can give you life, even then we dig in, we double down, and we turn back to those same old saviors. And so I want you to think this morning about how you imagine God in the midst of your stubbornness to turn to all sorts of idols in your life. When you have habitually uh, done things that you know are wrong and you just seem to not be able to shake them, um, when you have failed over and over and over again, or maybe you've just been on a long season of neglecting God. You don't really think about him. Life seems to be going okay. Your, your saviors are, are working for you right now. How do you think God sees you? What is he like? And that's what I want to turn to in verses 18 um, and 19. What, what is God like? What does Isaiah show us here? Um, so there's this term in psychology that um, most people are familiar with, I think, called projection, right? Projection is when we, um, it's like a defense mechanism for, for things that make us anxious or when we're stressed or when we're in a difficult experience or maybe in a difficult relationship with someone, we have this tendency to project. And that's where we take our own thoughts and our own feelings or our own impulses, and we begin to map them onto the other person to try to explain what's happening, right? And, which may or may not be true of that person at all. Um, and uh, this is a very common thing. If we're in a conversation with someone and we're getting anxious about it, or maybe we're upset and we want them to understand that we're right here, we start imagining that's exactly how they are also feeling, even if that's not true of, of what's going on in them at all, right? We project. Um, and so this is a common, you know, human thing that we do. Um, but one of the biggest mistakes that we make in theology is, uh, is projecting onto God um, or reasoning from ourselves to God about what his character is like. We assume that he is like us. We assume that he feels and thinks and acts in the way that we do in the world. And so this happens all the time. If you had a really bad experience with your father, uh, he's not someone you trust. Maybe he's hurt you. Maybe he just always seemed upset and disappointed with you. you that's, that's something you project and you assume that's what God is like. Um, or maybe you have an idea of what it means to be loving. You have some idea in your head about this is, this is what love looks like, and we project and say, that's what God must be like. He must love like how I think about love, right? Um, and so maybe if you have a hard time forgiving other people, you assume 
God has a hard time for forgiving other people. He does it, but he's still angry about it. Um, or maybe if you get really fed up with stubborn people who make the same mistakes over and over and over again, you assume that that's how God is as well. And what Isaiah shows us, right, from the very beginning of this series, we've seen this, about God is that God is not like us. God is not like us. What is he actually like? I think verses 18 and 19 beautifully tell us about the character of God, that he is eager to show grace and mercy and to save us. He says in verse 18, Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. What Isaiah is showing us here is that God is waiting on us. He is eager to show mercy to us. And when God exalts himself, that means when he shows his power and he brings judgment on the earth and destroys wickedness and puts an end to it, he exalts himself to show mercy to us. And as soon as we turn to him, as soon as he hears our cry, just like a mother hearing the crying child, the newborn infant, quickly jumps to go and respond to that. God, when he hears your cry for deliverance, he comes and begins to save you. And I wonder if that's how you picture God in that moment when you have failed once again. Or when you uh, look back at your life and you realize you have ignored him for years and years and years. Or do you project upon him and, and think, he's kind of annoyed with me, ticked off a bit, right? Do you see God as eager to show grace to you, as waiting patiently for you. There's this story that, that Jesus tells in his ministry about a father who had two sons. You know the story. And one of his sons is a rebellious son, and he decides to take his inheritance and leave home and to go his own way. And so as he goes into a far country, he begins to make terrible decisions time and time again, he wastes his money, he squanders it, he parties, and it results in him being in a place of shame and poverty and misery. And after some time, he finally realizes that the servants in his father's house live better than how he is now living because of his own choices. And so he swallows his pride and he heads home to beg for a job. He thinks, at least my dad might give me a job after the way I've treated him. Maybe he'd let me be like one of his servants. But what does that story tell us? As soon as the father sees the son a long way off, the father runs to greet him with joy. He dresses him with clothes and with honor, and he throws the wayward son a party. And friends, Jesus tells that story because he wants us to have an accurate picture of God the Father. Because it illustrates what Isaiah is talking about here. He's telling us what God is like. He is eager to forgive us. He welcomes us as soon as we cry out to him. 
He honors us. Despite all our stubborn rebellion, he runs at the first sign of contrition. And in the story, you know, there's an older brother, right? There's one who doesn't rejoice about the return of the younger son. But our God has a son who is exactly like the father. And that son has come into the world. He's come into the far country before any of us came to our senses in order to bear God's justice and to show us grace. And that son, Jesus Christ, was exalted on a cross to show mercy to us. He showed God's justice, but also showed that God justifies those who put their faith in him, who return to the Lord and trust in him. Jesus wasn't delivered on that cross at the hands of the empire so that we would be delivered from the death that we all deserve because of all the wayward choices that we make. God does not merely tell us that he is gracious and eager for us to repent. He demonstrates this eagerness to show grace in coming to rescue us while we were still stubborn, rebellious sinners. If God sent the Son while we were still enemies, don't you think he is eager to forgive you and welcome you again when you stumble and fall? God is not eager to wag his finger at you and say, I told you so. He's not simmering, begrudgingly pardoning you. He is eager to show you grace and mercy. So what do we learn from this? Well, at least three things. It tells us about the sort of people that that we should become if this is true, if this is what God is like. And first of all, what we learn from this is that we can be quick to repent and turn to God. This is exactly what Isaiah is calling Israel to do. They are very slow to repent. And the main reason we are slow to repent is because of our own pride, right? No one wants to hear, I told you so. Uh, It's painful to admit our fault because we lose our sense of moral superiority. And we think God is waiting there to say, see how terrible you are and to rub our face in it. And so if we... If we are slow to repent, what we tend to do in in place of that is we we maybe grovel and plead with God, because this is our way of still having some sort of um, standing before him, that that he has to forgive us, not because he is merciful, but because um, we're really showing how sad we are and upset we are, and we're we're hoping we can grovel enough to get into his good graces again. We, We really refuse to let him show us grace upon grace. Or we start bargaining with God. We commit to doing better, right? We come back to God, but we say, look, I know I've screwed up, but I'm going to make it up to you. I'm going to do everything right from here on out. I'm going to let you have uh, lordship over this part of my life. I'm going to really uh, get it together this time. That's, that's the way we typically approach things. But repentance and faith looks different than that. Look at verse uh, 15, because we get a picture of this here. This is what the Lord says that he's inviting us to. He says, in returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. There's a parallelism uh, going on in these verses where rest and quietness are paired together in the Hebrew parallelism. What is he saying there? The, The way forward with God is not through your own activity. It's not through your proving to God that you've really turned the corner. It's resting in what he has done for you in Christ. It's quietness. He says uh, returning is paralleled with trust. This is not 
you saving yourself. This is not you turning your life around. This is you throwing yourself wholly upon God and his mercy towards you in Jesus that he will change you. He will rescue you. He will cleanse you. It's not something you can do at all. He says, you shall be saved and Yahweh shall be your strength. Friends, the Christian faith is not moralism. It's not striving. It's not self-improvement. It's, this is not a community of pretty great people. This is a community that is throwing ourselves upon the grace of God and trusting in him to rescue us, not only from our sin, but also from this whole way of life that is wrapped up in sin, these destructive ways of living that we're all caught up in, that God delivers us from over time through his grace to us in Christ. So if this is what God is like, not wagging his finger at us, but eager to show us mercy and grace, then, um, then we become people who quickly return to the Lord and tell the truth about our sin, and repent. That's why we practice it every Sunday, is so that we learn to do that in the rest of the week. And of course, that means that we have to be people who are humbled, because pride is the biggest barrier to our repentance. And uh, we have to uh, apologize to one another. And then, uh, as, as he says in the passage later, he becomes our teacher. And he says, this is the way. Walk in it and destroy those idols. Don't continue turning to them anymore. Uh, and that's the second thing I want us to see today, that, that true repentance involves forsaking our idols, right? False repentance is just grief or sadness about um, the wrong that we've done and often about the consequences of our own sin. That's, that's not real repentance. That's just being sad that our sin is finally doing what sin does, right? But true repentance destroys idols and begins to walk in God's ways. Look at verse 20. Though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, and then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. He's saying if you, true repentance is leaning wholly on Jesus, which means you're letting go of trusting in these false saviors. And that, that's the Christian life, is that you begin to realize, oh, I, I live for being liked by other people. And as I trust in Jesus, I'll start letting go of the need to be liked by other people. Or I desperately want to feel safe and secure in my life, and so money and career is really important to me. Um, and, and to trust in Jesus means to begin saying, okay, I'm still going to work hard and all that, but I don't need that to feel safe anymore because I'm resting in the security that Jesus provides. And I can go on a hundred million other examples of that. To trust in Jesus and to cling to him is to let go of these other idols that dominate our life. And we can begin to see that as we, where do I go when I'm in trouble? Where do I go when I feel stressed? Where do I go when I'm afraid? Often those are the things that we're trusting in, whether it's food or approval or affection or fun or I'm medicating in some way or I'm avoiding certain experiences. Those are, those are highlights. Uh, are they, uh, they reveal to us what we're trusting in. The third thing I want us to see, uh, and this is the flip side of all of this, is that if God is the sort of person or sort of being that doesn't wag his finger at us and say, I told you so, but he is eager to show grace, then we become, as we trust in him, people who don't say, I told you so. People who are eager to show mercy and grace to other people. 
And um, this is a great indicator of how we view God and what he's doing in our life, is how hard is it for us to show mercy to the person in our life who has continually screwed up. If you have been shown God's grace and you know he is eager to show you grace, um, that touches you in a way that over time you begin to let go of all the ways you have to prove to other people that they were wrong and you were right. And I'll be honest about this. Um, I am not good at this. That says a lot about me, I think. And I bet my kids, if they were being honest, as Evelyn's shaking her head, (laughs) is, uh, is that when they haven't listened to me and I finally get them, oh, I told you, right? And I've, and this is a, li- a lesson moment, right? And that's, you know, part of parenting is you're trying to teach them, but, um, but there's probably a lot of pride mixed into that. And I need to be shown that I'm right here. Um, but I want to become a father who doesn't need to say, I told you so, right? And is, and is joyful when there is repentance and acknowledgement of wrong. And I can tell you, uh, talking to a lot of adults, so I'm desperately afraid I'm going to do this with my own kids, is that this is a huge reason why people walk away from the church, right? Uh, kids who just, uh, that's what they heard from their parents, right? Really condemning all the time. And there's just a hardened, like, I just don't want to give, I don't want to acknowledge my parents are right about things, so I'm going to keep going on my way, right? But as a community, friends, as we begin to see God for who he is over time, it, it should make us patient. We are we are waiting. We're eager to show grace. So God, friends, surely will be gracious to us at the sound of our cry. So let's turn to God and rest as we show grace quickly to other people. Mark Baum, the guy I mentioned earlier um, in that movie uh, on the housing crisis, uh, had been a very angry and and self-righteous man. But as he saw that housing crisis develop and he began to see the pain that people were going to experience as a result of all these defaulted mortgages and how it was going to lead to this global collapse of the economy, uh, it it developed compassion in him. He saw that people are going to be hurting because of this. And um, that's why he never said, I told you so. And I really think that is a window into what God is like. It's so easy for us to think about God, yes, he hates our sin. Absolutely. God hates our sin. He warns <laughs> He warns us about our sin. Um, he yells at us. He brings the bread of adversity into our life, right? And the water of, uh, of affliction. Um, so he brings hard things into our life because he's trying to wake us up to the danger of our sin. But it's not because we're, we're messing up his life in some way. <laughs> It's that he delights in our life and joy, and he wants us to flourish. And so when we turn to him, that's why he's so ready. Because his anger was never about you disturbing him. It was always about what he wants for you. And, uh, and so he, is, he just loves to see us turn and come to him. And so just want you to, as we go to the table here, reflect on where you are. You know, are you drifting along in your life? And, um, and you've, you've kind of heard those nudges, come back to the Lord. And you've just kind of, uh, no, I'm not interested in that right now. And then it's been long enough that now you're like, oh gosh, if I turn around now, he, he's probably just so frustrated with me after all these years. What's the point? That's not what God is like. If you're stuck in habitual sin, it's just like I keep screwing up in the same way over and over and over again. What does God looking at you like this 
or come on, right? Maybe you're suffering and you're starting to doubt God's desire to deliver you. And you just think, uh, he must be a, a mean God. I want you to, to hear what Isaiah says today. He is eager to show mercy to you. He um, exalts himself to show mercy to you. And um, this table demonstrates you know, what we've heard this morning. Um, in, in Isaiah, it says that he brought the, the bread of affliction, uh, excuse me, the bread of adversity and the water of affliction to Israel. He brought difficulty into their life. But friends, uh, in this meal, we see that God brought the bread of affliction and the water of iniquity to his son in full measure so that we could have life. And he feeds us with this bread and cup that are a blessing to us so that we might experience life with him. And so I want you to come to this table and taste of his goodness and his promises and see his smile upon you in this meal. Let's pray together.